Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dromiskin. Call 087-660-4237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 30th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The schools are back uh, this week, but getting to school is far from certain for thousands of children and indeed their distraught parents. There was a record 130,000 applications for places on the school bus this year. 115,000 students have their ticket, but that leaves 15,000. 15,000 children left stranded. To put that into perspective, I'll begin today by reading an email that has come into us from one parent, Rachel O'Brien, who says it is with enormous disappointment and a feeling of community being left out that a number of children from Cullen Village will be left without school transport this year and not allowed on the school bus. The children are to start back on Thursday of this week and she says that some of these children are in exam years but they've no way of attending school due to the volume of applications for free transport. Children excluded are children who paid for their tickets last year and were in possession of tickets but no longer have a place this year because of this lottery system and they lost out. Uh, Rachel in her email says this is so wrong on so many levels. Bus Aaron need to address the issue. Do I leave my job so I can transport my children to school? She asks. Thank you indeed Rachel. We can uh, hear the annoyance and frustration that you're feeling in your email and thank you for sending it to us. Let's speak to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education Dunka O'Leary who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, this is not just a problem in Cullen or in Louth or in Mead. It's right across the country and it is uh, because of how the school transport scheme was made free of charge that the €500 euro normally charged for a ticket uh, isn't being charged for this year and every parent wants uh, to get their child on the bus, it seems. I don't think it's as, as straightforward as that, Michael. Uh, I think, obviously, that's a, that's a factor, certainly. Um, the first thing, I, like, I mean, I, I am very aware of the fact that communities, it is, you're right, a problem right across the state, but it seems to be particularly a problem in, in Mead and Louth are some of the county's worst affected. We see some of the papers... Uh, in the national papers, we see discussions of the situation in Screen and some of the other villages that you've identified there and parents who are, who are trying to figure out how they're going to get from, for example, Screen to Navin in, in five or ten minutes. And it's just it's not something that can be done realistically. 
The problem, to some extent, is, look, I mean, there is enormous potential there in terms of school bus transport. Ultimately, we, it is in everyone's interest to ensure that we reduce emissions, that we save parents' costs, that we save on traffic, that we get as many kids as we can into school buses, get them going to school that way. The problem this year, and while we welcome the fact that uh, the fee has been waived and it's something that we are in the long run looking to abolish permanently, the problem isn't just in relation to increased demand. There is increased demand. But we did, I suppose, at the outset have a view that um, people who had applied on time who had got what are called concessionary places, which are places that are, um, you know, for people who don't maybe meet the, meet the, the strict eligibility criteria, but usually typically do get a place yeah. uh, in most years. And you'll have been dealing with a lot of those parents yourself, Michael, on the, on the show over the last couple of days. Those parents, where they applied on time, typically would have got a place. This year, they have now been displaced by people who didn't apply on time but met the eligibility criteria. I don't think that that was right. I think the people who applied on time should have been given priority. And an awful lot of the parents who are most badly affected by this uh, are are those people who fall into that category. What we need to do now is try and urgently find whatever capacity can be found through okay. there in itself and through private operators because it's just, look, people are, mm. parents are, and I know it's myself. A, I mean, it was a, a lottery, so I suppose it's luck of the draw to some extent. Uh, and regardless of how it was approached, you'd still have ended up with the same problem, maybe different people uh, in the same situation, but still 15,000 problems, a shortfall of 15,000 seats. Uh, a lot of children back in school already, and by the end of the week, I imagine all of uh, the secondary school classes will be full. Uh, so can this problem be sorted out in that time frame? Well, the other thing is, no, I just want to come back just, Michael, like, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't think it's quite the same as, look, I mean, somebody's going to lose out no matter what. There is a difference between people who have been relying on the scheme for oh, years, yeah. who mm. applied on time, and mm. those who decided for the first time that they were going to avail of it. Obviously, that's welcome. They're entitled to apply. Mm-hmm. But those who have come to rely upon the scheme... No, no, I don't mean to undermine that point. Uh, what, what I'm talking about is the scale of the problem. Uh, yes. that for anybody who finds themselves in that situation, and we are where we are and all of that sort of thing, uh, the immediate problem is getting buses on the road and drivers to ferry children to schools. Can it be done uh, over the course of a, a week for 15,000 children? I think it's going to have to be done incrementally. We're going to have to try and find as much capacity as we can as soon as possible. Whether it's going to be possible to sort that over the next couple of days, I think that's probably unlikely. But like, I mean, I think we need to prioritise those areas where there is the greatest pressure. And I think a number of them have been identified uh, in County Mead and County Loud already. Uh, I, I do think, you know, like, I mean, the Minister has tried to put out the fact that there is a record number of places where actually, in fact, there was more passes uh, issued last year uh, than there has been uh, so far this year already. So, like, I mean, can the capacity be found? It can. Can it be found overnight? I don't believe that it necessarily can, but we need to do whatever we can at this point in time. Mm. We proposed, um, it, when I was speaking to you at the time in relation to our, car, our return to school costs, mm-hmm. we proposed 10,000 additional places because we want to expand the scheme. Like, I mean, the other thing to see in relation to this is there is such huge potential here. Uh, it is in everyone's interest. We don't want to see the big, long trails of cars outside our schools. We want to see kids going by foot, by bike and by bus. Uh, and it is in everyone's interest if we can try and get as many kids as possible onto the scheme. But, you know, it has to be on the basis of fairness and equity. And those who've relied on it most uh, should be 
in my view, mm. uh, top of the queue uh, rather than those who uh, who have just applied for the first time this year. Mm. So look, I mean, what it is about now is Minister Foley, Boss Aaron, meeting and uh, meeting with as many of the private operators as possible, trying to identify where their additional capacity that can either be found within the system or hired in mm. and put to use to try and create the additional places. There will be places as well that the, the, there will be instances where people have applied who will end up not taking up the scheme. We need to identify as soon as possible where those places are going to be and try and reallocate them. Um, but um, it's, it's about trying to find additional capacity. This is a failure capacity planning. We mm. shouldn't be in the situation. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about that. that. I, increased demand. What, was it a, an unintended consequence? I mean, I don't remember anybody saying when it, it was announced that the school bus was going to be free to help parents with the cost of living and all of that. Uh, but I don't remember anybody saying you're going to have a surge of applications. Uh, but when those applications came, should there have been a a reaction then. It it seems very late in the day to be sorting out a a problem on such a massive scale this week as the children are coming back to school. I agree with you. Now, I wouldn't say that nobody said anything, and certainly Sinn Féin and our transport spokesperson in your local TD there in Meads, Darren O'Rourke, would have been flagging this issue and making the point in relation to those concessionary passes and people who would have been relying upon them uh, and has been raising concerns around the fact that uh, those people weren't getting priority, so it's not the case that nobody had identified this. Um, but, you know, I, I think it should have been obvious to the Minister that uh, if you make it free, and look, I mean, there is an enormous benefit to that, obviously, but if you make it free, then that will uh, increase demand, and that has an impact on on the number of places. Mm. Then it's a question of how you prioritise within that. That capacity planning did not happen. Unfortunately, the Minister has failed to... Uh, to, to see that coming uh, and now we have a chaotic situation and parents are down with it because mm. I know myself from talking to parents just at the school gates and so on that you know people put in place very difficult arrangements and you know they're trying to do two or three things in the one morning one kid to crash one uh, off to secondary school or one off to primary school and then off to work and all that kind mm. of stuff and you know they're very tight they're yeah. very tight uh, operations very often mm. and Military style operation. I mean, you can hear the frustration in Rachel's email when she's asking, does she have to give up work? Uh, She's obviously juggling so many things. She's wondering, how am I expected to do this? Yeah. No, and that's what I'm talking about. Like, I mean, Mm. there are parents in that situation who are wondering about whether they're going to have to start work late, whether they're going to have to drop a day, all this kind Mm. of stuff. Or who are they going to ring? Are they going to ring the parents, their their own parents? how are they going to come around this? So mm. uh, it's a really unfair situation for parents to be in. It's very stressful for the students as well, of course. Uh, and indeed, you could have situations. I was listening to Radio 1 there this morning talking about kids going from screen to Navin and they've been there, I don't know, it's an hour and 15 minutes before school starts, you know, and these are very early starts and hanging around the town and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, like, I mean, that's not... Uh, that's not what anyone wants, and that's a situation that we need to try and resolve. So, look, I'm just urging the minister yeah. to be meeting with Bus Air and the private operators, picking up the phone to as many of the private operators, particularly the areas worst mm. affected, to try and identify where's the additional capacity and what can we bring into the system, what can we buy into the system to try and increase the number of seats. We need a significant amount of seats, but... Uh, you know, like, I mean, we proposed 10,000 additional seats at a cost of 10 million. Um, we need to try and find as much as we can at the earliest juncture here now mm. uh, to try and incrementally fill those gaps. Well, it's certainly an urgent issue, but it's just one of a, a number of urgent issues uh, that uh, the Minister faces as uh, the schools return, because even if you do get the kids to school this week and next week, uh, will there be teachers for them? Yeah, well, like, I mean, I think this is particularly a problem in uh, in areas such as 
Dublin and the parts of Mead near Dublin, I would say, and the parts of Loud near Dublin, the cost of living crisis is meaning that an awful lot of young teachers are, are not staying in these uh, urban centres, and that means that because of that cover for substitution for maternity leave and all this kind of stuff is uh, is under very, very severe pressure. So we are hearing an awful lot of schools um, that are under severe pressure. Um, there's a number of things that need to be done. Obviously, the public sector pay talks are going on and um, there are still issues that need to be fixed in terms of lower paid teachers who are on a lower scale than some of their peers. That needs to be rectified. But obviously, the cost of living crisis generally needs to be tackled because um, it's, it's, in some ways, it's similar to the situation that we face with nurses, with doctors, with occupational therapists and so many other vital public servants that mm. um, it is just not paying people to, uh, to stay in Ireland and it's not paying people to stay in the system because um, the cost of living is so high, the cost of rent, the cost of childcare, the cost of so many things and now indeed... Uh, in lots of respects, the cost of energy as we look into the winter could be very severe. So ultimately what this is about, to some extent, yes, it is about the public sector pay talks and how we resolve the, the specific issues that relate to teachers. Um, but ultimately, it's about the challenges that all public sector right. and indeed private sector workers face. Do you, do, do you think that the 6.5% offer over two years will go some way to addressing uh, those concerns? Yeah, look, I suppose there are negotiations that are ongoing and like sometimes you see in the media, you see the headline rate, but like, I mean, obviously there's a lot more than that to public sector pay talks. It's about increments, it's about points on the scale and it's about an awful lot more in terms of allowances and different things like that. So, look, I mean, it's not for me mm. to negotiate on the air. Uh, that's between the unions okay. and the government. I hope that uh, an, an agreement is reached. I hope that that can deliver us... Um, a year or a winter free of uh, industrial strife. Um, but okay, well, ultimately, uh, we need to tackle beyond just the public sector pay mm. talks. We need to deliver on the cost of living crisis that people are facing. Okay, and, and we it, need to ensure that it pays young workers uh, to work in our public services. Each of the individual trade unions will have to consider what's on offer as well, apart from anything else. Uh, but uh, let's uh, move forward a, a few weeks to a crisis which is about to unfold. I think people are bracing themselves for the reopening of the colleges and where students are going to end up staying. Yeah, well, look, I mean, undoubtedly there is going to be very, very severe pressure there and uh, I suppose the delayed results in the leaving cert is very far from ideal in that regard as well and I think this year, whatever about the last few years of COVID, I think there's less of an excuse realistically um, because um, the capacity should have existed and we need to look at why these results were delayed but that means that students are going to be getting their offers and scrambling to try and find accommodation. Um, There is um, I think, you know, we need to um, urgently try and find whatever capacity exists. We haven't been building enough purpose-built student accommodation on campus the last 10 or 15 years, and too many students are relying on and Indeed, they're competing with people on the social housing waiting list, competing with people on half of returns of the, the private rented sector. So um, we haven't invested enough in terms of capital. That is the future. That's not going to obviously come on screen uh, this September or October, um, but um, I, I suppose it's vitally important that the student unions get the resources that they need to try and ensure that students who are at risk, who are in the most vulnerable situations, are supported. But I would say that we could very particularly in Dublin and Cork and in Galway be looking at very severe shortages uh, and 
you know, very tight timescales for students to try and find accommodation. And very often students probably uh, taking very substandard accommodation out of desperation, which is something nobody wants to see. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on education, Donka O'Leary, who's a TD for Cork South Central. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the news of uh, the per public uh, sector pay deal, or at least uh, what's on offer, uh, may come as a relief uh, given uh, the threat of strike action over the autumn. Uh, let's speak uh, to Carmel Byrne, who's a member of the INTO Executive Committee for Meath. So that's the Irish National Teachers Organisation. We're going to talk about classroom sizes and more in a, a moment uh, but 6.5% over two years have you any thoughts on that this morning Carmel? morning Michael and just to clarify it's Carmel Brown uh, from, from the Central Executive Committee here I beg your pardon no problem at all Michael yes indeed it was interesting that the talks went through all, all through the night and the offer has been made but it would be very inappropriate for me to comment at this stage because we haven't seen the WRC proposal document yet it hasn't issued yet so once that issues, a special meeting of the Central Executive Committee will take place. Uh, we'll discuss the proposal and then decide on, on where to go next. OK, but you're glad to have a proposal, if nothing it's else. absolutely fantastic, because I suppose mm. we were we were devastated that, that nothing came in the earlier meetings in June. Um, I know the members have been waiting patiently in spite of soaring in, uh, inflation, etc., to, to uh, find some offer on the table. So at least it's good that it's there. Okay. I mean, I suppose everybody right throughout the... The workforce and the country is aware that their, their take-home pay has been decimated mm. in the sense that the cost of living has increased so much. Yeah. Well, I'm sure nobody wants to be taking industrial action or going on strike for that matter. Uh, and I'm equally sure that all of the teachers are just as happy as uh, the young children in national schools to be returning to the classrooms. Uh, and uh, some of uh, the classrooms are quite large, as has always been the case in this country. Uh, the Irish Independent reporting on that this week. Uh, and notable how much of a, an improvement there has been, but at the same time, uh, we've the biggest classrooms across Europe. We have indeed, uh, Michael, and this is something that we at INTO have been uh, fighting for for the last 23 years. Um, as was the recently published the statistical bulletin shed, shed light on actually ha- how big a problem it is. So there's one in three uh, classes throughout the country. That's 1,055 primary schools have classes in in excess of uh, 30 children. So it's a staggering statistic, which means 83% of our primary schools are taught in classes that are above the EU average. Mm. So it's something that's been a major concern to us. 17% of uh, children in classes below that EU average of 20. Yes, Uh, yes. But I suppose for, for us, you know, the children in the most uh, disadvantaged uh, classes, those in disadvantaged schools, the Jesh Band 1 schools, mm. is still 52% of them in classes above the EU average of 20, you know, so yeah. it's something that we really, really need to, to get. And why, uh, why, why is that the case? Is that, is that the, uh, down to uh, population in certain areas? Well, it's, it's population, but it's also the fact that this has been going on. I mean, it's 1999 when Michal Martin was Minister for Education. He said that there'll be capping 30 pupils per class, but that, that, that hasn't happened, unfortunately, 23 years mm. later. I suppose during the recession times, there was no change to class size. You know, and in fairness, in the last budget, the, the um, numbers was reduced by one point. So from this September, that comes into place this September. So there is a reduction this September which will bring a lot of classes down to 24 pupils. 
Um, but then we're hoping to get a two-point reduction in the next budget, which will end this once and for all. Okay, well, that cap of 30 pupils per class should have uh, come into play in 1999, over 20 years ago, as you say. Uh, And it's interesting to look at the statistics in that sense, uh, because there's over half a, a, a million children 537,400 children in national school. Uh, Out of that though, 2,750 children are in classes of 35 or more. That's a a very big class, isn't it? That's an incredible statistic and I mean that comes about you know when you might have an influx of children arriving in a particular year um, and then you know the school has no option but to have those bigger classes because they don't get an extra teacher I suppose. Even with the, the budget announcement last year that there was a drop in one point that didn't come into being until this September, even though it was announced last October. So that that's the way the system works, that when budget, budget this year comes in September, it'll be for for September 2023 that the impact will happen. So we, we are hopeful. And I mean, it has been a long-held um, mantra of all the current government parties that they would reduce class size mm. the EU average. So we're very hopeful that they, they will bring it about this time around. Yeah, well, you have nearly two classes in a class that is over uh, 35 children in it. Uh, so uh, I suppose that explains the problem. Uh, for two classes, you need two teachers. And if you don't have two teachers, if you've just got one teacher, uh, well, then you end up with these supersized classes. That's absolutely it. And I mean, I suppose COVID showed us how difficult it was to manage those very large classes. You know, anybody who was outside of the system who arrived into a school as we had, you know, an occasion for, for, for people to come in for, for very specific reasons. They were absolutely shocked to see a classroom with 35 children and um, the social distancing just couldn't happen because there was, was just no space for those children to be to be anyway socially distant. And I suppose all learning, that's uh, active learning can't take place in classes that size as well. So it, it's a huge disadvantage to, to all our pupils mm. and Pupils with special needs, then the, the evidence shows and research shows that they achieve much better in smaller classes where they have opportunity to have much more one-to-one engagement with the teacher. But not only that, they have more opportunity to engage with their peers mm. and peer learning is key to success in, in many instances. Okay, so you're talking about uh, big classrooms uh, of children who are aged 12 and younger, 7 to 12 really, isn't it? Well, it, it's, it's 5 to 12. It's 5 to 12, okay. Well, yeah, that yeah. makes the point even stronger that I was going to make, which is uh, the level of concentration because uh, I take it that's part of the problem in trying to teach it, such a, a big classroom of small children? Well, it's just that the pupil-teacher interactions are not the same, you know, when you have a huge class. And, you know, for, for the, a lot of teachers, they like active learning and providing opportunity for children's, children to explore and experiment. And in a classroom where there's no space to move, that's quite difficult, you know, it's, it's almost impossible. Mm. You know, and then the, the other, the other uh, problem then is for the disadvantaged pupils. And there are many disadvantaged pupils in our mainstream schools, and rightly so. Um, and they're, they just find it extremely difficult to engage and, as you said, to focus on and concentrate because uh, the teacher just doesn't have the, the opportunity to give them as much personal contact as, as would be in a smaller class. Is it difficult uh, to maintain control? Um, well, I mean, kids kids will engage with the teacher when the, the lessons are engaging, the children will engage. And, you know, most kids are very interested in learning now. Mm. So it's, it's not, it wouldn't be any more of a problem than it would be necessarily with a smaller class because... You know, if the kids are active, actively engaged in their learning, uh, and they won't, they won't be control issues. Okay, but are they actively engaged or engaged, well, engaged as, as actively as you would like them to be? Is they're, they're not active in that they're not, mm. 
they're not be able to move around the classroom as much as they would be if they were in a smaller class. And I mm. suppose that's particularly pertinent for younger children, mm. where the whole concept of Ashtar comes in, which is, is all about creative and active play and, and group settings and all of that. Okay. And in fairness, I think many schools throughout the country have made an effort to, to reduce the size of their infant classes, if at all possible. If that means that the infant class might be split in two and a more senior class then would be larger as a result because the teachers the teachers are the same number they just have to be split them, uh, between the number of, of pupils in school. Does it impact on how they'll progress uh, through uh, education? Uh, will it have uh, an impact or does it have the potential to have a, an impact let's say on uh, their leaving cert results or their life well, choices? It has, it, the potential, the research shows that the children with special needs uh, achieve better in smaller classes. It shows that children with educational disadvantage achieve better in smaller classes so that, that research evidence is there. Um, you know, the, a lot of children, though, will will still learn. Um, the, the, there's a lot of children who just get on with it and will still learn, but they just don't have the same experiences that they could have in a smaller class. OK. Carmel, we leave it there. Uh, thanks for joining us. And apologies uh, for the mix-up uh, with your name in the introduction this morning. That's as well. no problem Thank at all. Indeed. Take care. Thank you indeed. Carmel Brown, who's a, a member of the INTO Executive Committee in County Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Acquired Brain Injury Ireland is calling on uh, the government uh, to act on an ombudsman report from last year and allocate €4 million in funding to the organisation to work with young people in nursing homes. Let's speak to Aoife Lucy, Communications and Engagement Manager with ABII. Good morning to you Aoife and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, And you've set out how you would intend to spend this €4 million and it's very, very important work uh, because you're talking about working with 90 people but really it's a, a drop in the ocean in terms of the amount of people, young people who are in nursing homes inappropriately. Correct, Michael. Yeah, and thank you very much for having me. Um, The Ombudsman report, as you say, Wasted Lives, which was published in 2021, estimates that there are some 1,300 people under the age of 65 living in nursing homes. Now, some of those individuals are in nursing homes because they require complex care. You know, they have complex needs. They require ongoing care. But the reality is that many of those individuals are in nursing homes simply because there is no more uh, appropriate alternative care available to them. Many of those 1,300 individuals under 65 have brain injuries and other neurological conditions. And we know from our work, Michael, that we can provide rehabilitation to those individuals to support them to rebuild their lives and to transfer back into the community where they can live more independently but unfortunately, to date, the funding just have not been there to enable them to do that. OK. Um, it's uh, wonderful to see the care that is given to people in nursing homes. Uh, if you need nursing home care, nursing, nursing home care is fantastic. But it, it really is not a, a place for somebody who doesn't need nursing home care to be living. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And the report is not a criticism of nursing homes whatsoever. You know, it, 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 exactly as you say, it commends the work that they do. But you're right. For a young person who, who doesn't necessarily require, um, you know, the, the, the kind of personalised care that, that nursing homes provide, uh, it's, it, essentially what it means is that th- those individuals who can have rehabilitation potential to um, increase their independence, 
to work on issues that are caused by by acquired brain injury, you know, like memory loss and day-to-day planning requirements. They may have some physical impacts. If if they don't have specialist brain injury rehabilitation, you know, the the, the reality is that they just won't be able to rebuild those skills. Um, and, you know, essentially they'll, they'll be forgotten about in a nursing mm-hmm. home. We know mm-hmm. that when individuals go into nursing homes, unfortunately, there is no, uh, there, there's no system in place to to track them, to, to keep an eye on them, mm. to see, you know, how are they doing? When are they ready to, you know, to transfer back out? Mm. And many of them are being left there. Like the, the, the name of the title of the report, Wasted Lives, is very resonant because it's true. And mm. every day spent in a nursing home for a young person is another day wasted. Okay, and... Uh that's uh, one of uh, the things that you would be doing with the four million, if it was allocated to you by the government, is this uh, identifying uh, people uh, who perhaps could live independently or more independently. Uh, you're talking about setting up three national assessment teams, uh, and that is a, a first step uh, to identify ninety people. Why, why, why ninety people uh, when uh, there are so many thirteen hundred young people living in nursing homes? Well, look, it's a stepped approach, Michael. And yeah. um, I mean, this, the, the challenge, as you said, like, it's a drop in the ocean yeah. comparing to, 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 the, to the need there. Yeah. The estimate that we have set out, we think, you know, is a realistic one. We know that with the, the allocation that we've estimated of four million, that will, that will allow us um, to take the first steps to take the lead and engage with the HSC to identify, you know, what are the needs of, of, of those individuals, what kind of services and supports may they require to help them move from nursing home back to the community. And um, we know ourselves that, 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 this, that this process works. We have evidence to prove it. At the minute, there are some, um, you know, 21 individuals living in houses from a, in acquired brain injury, Ireland houses who have come from nursing homes, who've been transferred there. Um, from nursing homes. We know that more than half of the individuals who come to live with us with Acquired Brain Injury Ireland ultimately transfer back to the community to live more independently with Mm. lesser supports. So we have the evidence that this approach works and it reduces the burden on the state. It reduces caregiver burden. So really, it's a no-brainer. Okay. Uh, And tell me uh, about uh, how uh, people uh, can return to the community, to living in the community. community. Um, You talk about rehabilitation houses. Are are they congregated settings? Well, we we don't use the term congregated settings. Actually, so the the houses, I suppose, that Acquired Brain Injury Ireland runs, uh, it it runs 16 of them around the country. Um, they're settings which are a home from home. There, there are four to five, sometimes six brain injury survivors living in those houses, you know, with, with round the clock care. But really, it is their home. You know, they make the decisions yeah. about the home. They're very involved in the running of the home. Yeah. It, is, it, it is their it, it's their home and the whole purpose. Would they decide what to have for breakfast? Would they decide? Oh, abso- yeah. oh absolutely. Would they decide, when, that, would, would they decide the, when to have their dinner? Oh, absolutely. And they'll yeah. make the breakfast and mm. they'll assist with the shopping and yeah. they'll do the washing. And essentially what we're doing is we're helping people to be able to live their life mm. on a day-to-day well, basis. Well, that's very so, different than a nursing home. And I suppose that's the point because there's meal times in nursing homes. But if, if you're apart from that, if you're going out to do the shopping for your dinner, that's uh, a whole lot of stimulation uh, r- r- when you compare it to sitting in a nursing home waiting for somebody to call you for your dinner. They're very simple things, but they're very important things, no doubt. 
you're absolutely right. And we speak to individuals, you know, who have come through our services and are now living in their own apartments, for example, who spent four, five, six, sometimes seven years in community hospitals and nursing homes because of a lack of other availability of more appropriate care. And they tell us that they forgot how to do their washing. They forgot how to make their cereal, as you suggest. And it took them a really long time coming out of those, you know, institutionalized settings to relearn how to do the day-to-day tasks that are required for their independent living. And they get, you know, that when they when they get the specialist brain injury rehabilitation that organizations like Acquired Brain Injury Ireland provide, um, they, they, they are able, it, it, gets, it gives them their independence back. They're able to, you know, to, to, to go back to living the lives that they deserve. Mm. One of the slogans that we've used in our campaigns, Michael, is don't save me, then leave me. And it was actually quoted in the Wasted Lives report from the Ombudsman. Mm. More and more young people are surviving the trauma of brain injury, you know, because of advances in medicine and technology. But the, the, un, unfortunately, once acute care for those individuals finish, really there's no statutory state support for them to, to live in their community. And I suppose this is where the problem is arising. Okay. There is statutory support for them to live in nursing homes under, mm. the Fair Deal, under the Fair Deal scheme, but no such support for them to live in the community, which is often a more appropriate setting for them. Okay. So this is really, you know, the the, 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 the nub of the issue. And what mm. we want to do not only is to take individuals out of nursing homes, but we want to stop them going in in the first place yeah, because no. this problem is still going on. Yeah, so, okay. look, the, you know, we the, the the recommendations in the Wasted Lives report, it, with you know, with respect to the Department of Health, the government, and the HSE, there have been pilot, uh, you know, pilots um, enacted since 2021 to you know take really small steps to begin the process of moving individuals out of nursing homes. But really much more needs to be done much more quickly. And mm. what we are saying is that we have the expertise and the track record to do that. Mm. We just need the urgent investment from mm. government. Yeah, and the funding, obviously. Um, just uh, when it comes to independence, um, you can't put a price on, on that. Uh, and I think we would only realise that if our independence was taken away from us, which is the reality of uh, the situation that uh, the people you're talking about have found themselves in. Uh, but can I ask you about price? Is it cheaper to accommodate people in nursing homes? It's no is the answer. It like it 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 makes much more economic sense for um for the government to be investing in rehabilitation, and we actually have some research which we'll be releasing next week, which proves that we can show that it's more cost effective and that it 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 delivers much better outcomes um for quality of life to invest in rehabilitation rather to hold somebody long term in a community hospital bed or in a nursing home. This is why, you know, you, you know, it really doesn't make very much sense when we look at it from, uh, you know, an, an, an economic perspective, a quality of life perspective. Um, rehabilitation is the way forward. Um, and, and, and like I say, we know we can do this. We have done it before. We have the numbers. We have the figures to back it up. We have the mm. personal testimony of individuals who have been through our services um, and, and who can testify to it. So, mm. Uh, yeah, like I say, it's a no-brainer. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I can see uh, in your press briefing uh, you have in bold rehabilitation is a right, not a request. 
Uh, but you are asking for the funding to help uh, people uh, to go through uh, an appropriate rehabilitation programme. Aoife, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Aoife Lucy is the Communications and Engagement Manager with Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Labour Party is to launch what it calls a report card on the government's Housing for All policy. This is the big €4 billion Euro per year plan that the government announced a year ago. Uh, the Labour Party, in its report card, is suggesting that 14 targets under the plan have not been met and there's no update on uh, further eight targets in this plan. I've been speaking with the Labour Party's spokesperson on housing, Rebecca Moynihan, about what the government describes as the most ambitious housing plan in the history of the state. Senator Moynihan says whilst it may be ambitious, ambitious, it's lacking in action. Like if you look at the key metrics um, by which housing impacts people, rents, it's up 12.7% nationally. House prices are up over 9%. Homelessness is up 30% from the figures that we have um, on Friday. So by the key metrics that affect people, um, housing for all is failing. Like even in Laos, for example, um, last year, rents are up 8.2%. So you're looking at 1500 for, you know, an average rent in a county like Laos. Um, and... We keep on hearing from the government in Spain that housing for all is working, that we're getting there, that it's going to, it's the biggest state investment um, in the history. But a year on, um, all of the indicators are that it's not working. Mm. And there are some successes in it. Uh, one of the successes being cost rental. But the cost rental units are completely oversubscribed. And so what that says to me is we actually need to up the targets for cost rental. Uh, we have a Cree-Conahan fund, which is going in to give a direct subsidy to developers but it's not tying to build apartments in cities but it's not tying that to affordability so what we should be doing is saying if you want Creekona has funding in order to be building your complex that has to be cost rental and that has to stay cost rental that has to be affordable for people um but i think it's well, really affordability important. is the key isn't it uh, and that's a very difficult question in this day and age uh, if you take in me i think rents have increased uh, by just over nine percent in the course of the last year and those increases are of course on top of other cre- increases and uh, the report from myhome.ie this week uh, suggesting that uh, whilst house prices uh, and rents are at all-time highs, uh, spending power has reduced so much that people just can't uh, meet the demand on them to uh, afford accommodation. Absolutely, and I think this is going to reach a crisis point when we're looking at an increase in energy bills that are happening over the winter as well. There is nothing like... So what we have been calling for is the whole country to be extended as an RPZ um, because it's not just an issue in urban areas, it's an issue in rural areas as well. You have counties like Leitrim which have like over 20% rental inflation in the last year. That says to me that the rental market is absolutely out of control. Um, so we need the whole country to be an RPZ. We need an immediate rent freeze. But what we need to do on the government side is significant state intervention to actually deliver affordable housing and affordable rental. Mm. And cost rental is working, but the numbers that are coming on stream are far too little. Okay, but four four billion a year under Housing for All, surely that is a significant intervention. 
But it's not been shown in the metrics that are coming up and the significant intervention are going into things like, for example, the Cree Kona have fund and um, the help to buy scheme, which are direct subsidies for developers. They're not the state putting it into investing in long term affordable housing. And that's the problem. And like that is the spin, certainly. But when you look at the key things, house prices up, rents up evictions up. It means that housing for all is not working for people. They really need to reassess what is working, scale back and target the money towards Mm. that, and what is not working. And some of it, particularly things like the, the subsidies to developers, are not working. Underpinned in housing for all is this belief that we need to create the right conditions and incentives for the private sector to be able to deliver. And in some respects, you know, that is laudable. But Mm. where the private sector fails and it's not working, we have to have state intervention. That's what the state has traditionally done in the area of housing. So, for example, directly building housing. Now what we're doing is um, we are funding landlords in order to be able to provide HAP. But we see from the homeless figures, which have hit over 10,000 and they're the highest they've ever been since they were recorded, that actually the majority of people coming for homelessness are coming from the private rented sector. Mm. When we had an eviction ban during the pandemic, one of the unintended but good consequences of that was that homelessness was falling and family homelessness was falling as well. We've over 3,000 children that are growing up in short-term emergency accommodation. That is a fundamental breaking of the social contract. Mm. And, and that's and accepted by everybody though, isn't it? Uh, and the Labour Party's report card t- today, I take it, on Housing for All uh, will not make for very good reading, especially for the government with 14 targets not met and no update on another eight targets. But having said that... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh- is it too soon? Uh, the report was only launched, uh, uh, or the plan was only re- launched a, a year ago, uh, and you were talking about cost rental, and they're saying that there'd be an average of 2,000 new cost rental homes uh, every year, and when it comes to rents, that they'd be freezed uh, by leaking increases in the rent pressure zones that you spoke about to inflation. Surely as time goes on, things will improve with this $4 billion being spent every single year. Well, 2,000 cost rental homes I don't think is ambitious enough and we see that from the oversubscription of cost rental homes and the figures are relying a lot on the private sector being able to deliver. Um, we're using the Cree Conaha Fund to essentially give 
those cities to developers to be able to build apartments, but there's no, no requirement for them to link that to affordability or cost rental. Um, so it's essentially a subsidy towards developers' profits and developers' um, margins. Um, but I, I'm going to give you an example of where we have been in housing for all. Mm. What we did is we went through the, 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 the report cards and had a look at what was delayed. Yeah. But for example, they say that income, income limits for social housing have been assessed and that has been completed. What has happened is that um, a report is sitting on the Minister's desk. The report has been written, but the actual income eligibility hasn't been assessed. And that's been sitting on the Minister's desk for over a year. So the Minister is relying on mm. on, 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 on spin all the time. He made an announcement to the homeless and um, he made an announcement to the homeless conference that he was in is increasing the discretionary rate for HAP and the core rates for HAP haven't been revised since two thousand and seven. But it still took more than a month for that to be communicated to local authorities. And the only reason that it ended up being communicated to local authorities in a a somewhat timely fashion Mm. was we were chasing that up from a number of people who were about to be made homeless, single people particularly because they were merging the single and couples rights. And we were saying, when are you going to tell the local authorities of this announcement that you made at that homeless conference? Because the local authorities are coming back to us and saying, we haven't heard anything about that officially or directly. Okay. We have only seen media reports. That spin, and that spin okay. was potentially allowing some people to be made homeless. All right, well, just uh, maybe in terms of action, what would you like uh, to see in terms of uh, the income threshold uh, for social housing? That's what, at about thirty-three or 34,000 now before you can qualify uh, for social housing, is it? Um, yes, it is. Um, and it hasn't been revised in over 11 years. Mm. But what should it be? It, sorry? But what should it be? Well, well, I think depending in different areas, it's, got, it, it's going to be different. And mm. that is the case um, of different local authorities have different amounts. But the big affordability squeezes on people who are above that income threshold, mm. yet are renting in the private rented sector and can't afford to buy. Okay. So they're the unsupported renters. And but, 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 you'd, but, but you'd assume most people in the country would qualify for social housing if you were to go much above that. But rents are out of control for most people. Is there I many understand, people yeah. Who, mm. is, is, is but can, can people, the state provide housing for all or should the house or should the state provide housing for all? So if, if you take that the average rent in Loud is about €1,500, Euro, mm. what you're requiring is for each household and particularly single people this hits to be earning, you know, net mm. uh, three, um a month. A lot of households aren't earning that. Yeah. Um, and the thing is... If oh, and I understand it, but I, I suppose another way of asking the same question is if two rights make a, a wrong or two wrongs make a, a right, as the case may be, the cost of rent is through the roof. But should the response to, be, to that be that the state funds housing for all, that the state provides housing for all? Well, absolutely. The state needs to provide directly built social housing in the way that we used to through local authorities. For people on €40,000, though? Absolutely. Really? Like okay. Rent, rent, rents and mortgages aren't affordable. Mm. People on €40,000 are the ones that are really, really vulnerable um, when it comes to the private rented sector and they can't afford to be able to buy on their own. And so where you have people who can't, from their own means, afford to buy their own house or, or provide for their own housing, the state should be there and the state should be setting in. Mm. Housing needs to be looked at as a social good, not just a charity thing that the state has to do for the very, very vulnerable. The fundamental thing 
you can't get a good education and college course if you don't have a safe and secure home. You can't hold down a good job if you don't have a safe and secure home. And leaving housing up to the market and it only being market delivered is where we've made that fundamental problem. Um, other cities too, countries like Vienna, who have consi- or, sorry, cities like Vienna who have consistently um, invested in social housing and provide social housing not just to the, to the poorest people, mm. but provide, provide social housing to everybody so that high numbers of people live within state-provided social housing in Vienna are the ones that are most affordable and most livable. And we have to stop looking at housing as a commodity and start looking at it as a fundamental right for people. OK, well, the Labour Party will launch your report card on Housing for All today, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more detail in the report. We look forward to reading that detail. And thank you indeed, Senator, for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you, Michael. Senator Rebecca Moynihan is the Labour Party spokesperson on housing and she spoke to me before we came on air today. Michael Reed on LMFM. You don't need me to tell you that the cost of electricity is through the roof. In fact, energy prices have increased tenfold in the course of the last year. It's a crisis not just here, but right across Europe. And next week, ministers from the 27 European countries are to meet for an extraordinary Energy Council meeting. The skyrocketing electricity prices are now exposing, for different reasons, the limitations of our current electricity market design. It was developed for completely different, under completely different circumstances and completely different purposes. It is no more fit for purpose. And that's why we, the Commission, Anna working on an emergency intervention and a structural reform of the electricity market. We need a new market model for electricity that really functions and brings us back into balance. Structural reform and emergency intervention promised yesterday by the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. We can speak to Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands North West, Colin Markey, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. I think any intervention would be welcomed by everybody at this stage as concern mounts over increasing and soaring electricity prices. You're suggesting that there should be a cap applied. It's uh, a suggestion that is favoured by quite a few, I think. Yes, well, I think uh, the, the structure of the market, as it is, as was pointed out by the, the Commission President, is just not working. Currently, the price of electricity is based, is linked closely to the price of gas. And the reality is that gas is only providing 21% of the electricity generation across Europe. So we're actually using the highest fifth of the, the price to, of the uh, input cost to set the price for the whole lot. In reality, two-thirds of our, of our generation is through the likes of wind and solar power and indeed nuclear as well, mm. renewables and nuclear. And their cost base hasn't really changed since the start of the war because they, they, they weren't dependent on gas or dependent on fossil fuels from Russia. So in reality, we could use at least two-thirds, if not a uh, four-fifth four of, 
of a base to set her price rather than the one-fifth that's actually the most expensive one. Okay, so the price of electricity is based on the cost of gas. As gas gas increases in price, electricity prices go up. But that was something that was designed when gas was considered to be cheap and reliable. Now that's not the case, predominantly because of the war. Is that it? That's essentially the situation. That's so is, is it, it, it's not just that. Is, is it that the production of electricity isn't in line, or the increases aren't in line with the increase in the cost of producing electricity? No, no, there's a different point as well. The other key point is that that was based on the time when we were more dependent on gas for electricity. But with the development of renewable energies and indeed the, the use of nuclear, that they, they are, if you like, out of sync with the cost of producing electricity with gas. And given that gas is only one-fifth of the mix, then gas shouldn't set the price. The other four-fifths of the mix should set the price. Okay, so when we pay our bills, these extortionate bills, where's all the money going? Is it going into someone's pocket as profit? Well, there's a big debate about whether or not we should should tax supernormal profits from energy companies. And in reality, we shouldn't be worried about taxing supernormal profits. We should make sure that the money's in the consumer's pocket and not in the energy company's pocket. And if we can bring down the cost of producing, uh, of the cost of electricity that's been sold on the market, then we bring that uh, that profiteering back into line into what it should be. Leave money in people's pocket. The idea of a super, uh, 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 if you like, a supernormal profit tax on uh, on a on on a companies that doesn't actually put money in in consumers' pockets. It just puts revenue in the, in a government's account. Mm. And like in reality, it's the, it's the consumers that are hard pressed. Uh, I take it though, it, it, it's not fair to describe it as profiteering. I, I mean, I take it that the electricity suppliers aren't setting out. Uh, to rip us off. Uh, They have no choice because of how the prices are set and linked to the price of gas. Well, in Ireland, it's not as as closely linked as it is on the rest of the continent because uh, we're somewhat outside of of that that structure in Europe. So, like, there is scope to move in Ireland. And bear in mind, even the... Like, there's a significant amount of gas used in the Irish network. I think it's about uh, 40%. But that's all either carb gas or North Sea gas. So it isn't even dependent on Russia either. So, in reality, while gas is part of the mix... Uh, the other companies which are producing, we'll say, renewable or be it nuclear or whatever other way they're producing it, they're actually flying under the wing, if you like, of the price set by gas mm. and, and uh, get, frankly, getting away with it at the well, moment. Well, well, that's what I was asking, I suppose. Is this flying under the wing and getting away with it or uh, is that how the price is set? I mean, there are regulators in place. Uh, I'm sure uh, the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities will have something to say about this at the Oireachtas Committee today. Yeah, but sure, if you listen to Airgrid, they say the, the auction system that's in place is not fit for purpose. Mm. So clearly there is an issue here. Like, uh, And I think the, the Commission for Energy Regulation, uh, or Regulation of Utilities, they're talking about generating extra capacity. But from, from Airgrid's perspective, the auction system that's in place doesn't work. I think it doesn't highlight the difference. Like, there's a, there's a massive difference in the in the cost base of the different types of electricity. And that's not been reflected on the ground in terms of delivering a competitive price to the consumer. What I think we need to do is focus the price around the 
competitiveness of the vast majority of the, the market, if you like, and then put pressure on the, the bit that's out of line to come back into line, or even if it comes to a point where some of that has to be subsidised, at least a, the, the vast majority of the electricity is being generated at a competitive price, and it can bring prices back into line. Okay, uh, apparently the Belgium government uh, is supporting uh, the idea of a, a cap on prices. When the ministers meet next week, they'll be hoping for a pan-European move on this and that there'll be agreement in imposing a cap on prices across the European Union. How would it work in reality? Would we have certainty about our bills? Well, I think we'll just have to see how that plays out. But I'd imagine what we're talking about is a wholesale cap in prices, which is the supply to the to, from the, the generators as opposed to the supply to the customer. But basically, if there's a cap put on that, that is, let's say, competitive for the vast majority of the market, then obviously there's another a small portion of the market that won't be able to compete at that level, and we'll have to do something, some level of an intervention at that level to support that, because otherwise we won't have 20% electricity and then you will have blackouts. So there, there, there's a balance to be done here to try and okay, set a, mark, a cap, hopefully, that will reflect... A small margin of profit for the vast majority of the industry and then look at the other sector that's out of kilter because they're reliant on Russian gas and the like and see how that can be, if you like, protected or supported. And I think that's what you're looking at. That will set a base price then for the wholesale market and hopefully that then would feed through to the consumers. I would imagine it's something along that line as what, what will be the outcome. Ultimately, they haven't met, they haven't agreed as of yet. But I would imagine something in, the, in that sort of range to talking. Okay, I suppose when you hear the European Commission talking about an emergency intervention uh, on a free market, if you like, uh, it is remarkable in itself. But if that intervention doesn't happen, uh, are we looking at price increase on top of price increase on top of price increase and so on? I think we are, and I think that's the, the problem because of the fact that like, if, if we're going to set all our market by the... the the gas, which is at a premium and isn't available, if you like, at the moment, then it's going to push the, the market price. It, it's going to lead, essentially, to market failure. That, that's the problem. So there, there needs to be an intervention in, in an emergency way in the short term, but equally there needs to be an intervention in the longer term to, like, to, to change the structure of how the market is managed. Mm. And if it's not linked to gas, uh, should it be linked to nuclear or what? Well, you'd imagine with the, with the growing uh, amount of renewables that's coming into the picture, like if you consider that, that a significant portion, I think it's 34%, I think, of the Irish, or in around, oh, just over 30% anyway, of the Irish energy production is renewables already, that if we want to champion renewables to be the future, I think we should base it on what renewables cost base should be and then let the rest fall into line with that. And if renewables can make a profit, if the others can't, then it'll drive the, the natural dynamic will be to move towards more renewables. So I think definitely a priority should be to ensure that renewables have a, have a comfortable income so that will generate more investment in that industry and at the same time put pressure on the fossil fuel element so over time there will be a transition across to more renewables. Okay, Minister Eamon Ryan will obviously represent Ireland at uh, that Extraordinary Energy Council meeting next week. This week in Prague, Defence Ministers are meeting and Simon Coveney meeting with his European counterparts. One of uh, the proposals is that Irish Army Defence Forces personnel uh, could end up training Ukrainian forces. What do you make of that? 
Look, I I don't really have much to say, and I suppose I've always thought that uh, our, our capacity in terms of military defence was in cyber security. I think we should look at that as been our contribution in general. Cyber security is a major issue that is, if you like, it's a major uh, element of of. Uh, of a military uh, defence system at this stage, and we would have significant capacity in this country, as does, believe it or not, Estonia. And I think uh, our investment should be in that space primarily. Mm. Obviously, mm. outside of that, we would like to see, like, a, if you like, from a defence force position. I think we always were peacekeepers, and I think that's that's where our, our strength has lied, lay in terms of boots on the ground. So, uh, my preference would be to continue our peacekeeping activities but outside of that if we have to make a contribution at a European level towards a, a military effort I think we should be focusing on cyber security Do you think if uh, the Irish Army was involved in training uh, army that is uh, at war that it would compromise Irish neutrality? I, I don't know to be honest I, I, I know there's, there's, there's they always talk about a political neutrality and military neutrality that ultimately politically were neutral and military were like the reality is I suppose we have to be honest with ourselves like if you want to have total military neutrality you have to be able to defend yourself and like I don't think like you can't be reliant on the, the, the benevolence of others and in reality at a whole lot of different levels Ireland's reliant on the benevolence of others if you take for instance our radar system is dependent on the UK so the notion that we're totally military neutral isn't the reality well, we, we rely on others around us to give us support if, if, if we come under any pressure in that regard mm. but politically we've always took a politically neutral position and I think definitely we should continue to be politically neutral and you, uh, you do ask the question if we politically decide to support and train a military in somewhere like the Ukraine does that compromise that and I wouldn't like to compromise our political neutrality Okay we've uh, accepted uh, something like 50,000 or it'll be 50,000 uh, in uh, the coming days uh, refugees fleeing from the war from Ukraine uh, should we ban Russians from coming into the country deny them visas? Well I think definitely the effort in relation to the Ukrainians has been vital it's been important that a uh, that we uh, support all the people that have come in because I think you have to appreciate the, the terrible circumstances they're coming from. But in terms of the Russians, I think, like in reality, uh, I think we have to seriously consider certainly restricting anyone that's coming from an economic perspective or that because ultimately we're in something of, with, with, the, with the gas situation, the, the fuel situ- energy situation, we're in something of an economic war with, with, with Russia. So I think anyone who's coming on an economic basis, I think we have to look at what's happening there. And I suppose from a tourism perspective, like I know there's been a discussion across particularly Eastern Europe where there was a lot of Russian visa tourists coming into places like Finland and the like, uh, whether they should be restricted. And I certainly think it's a strange scenario to be inviting people in as tourists while at the same time uh, questioning their their. their their role, if you like, in supporting a government that is. And then the the flip side of that is you have to say, does the ordinary Russian person have any say in the matter anyway? So, But I think people who are involved that are, let's say, economically, let's say, we we know the way the Russian system works, that most of the, the, the wealth is invested in a small few. So from an economic perspective, anyone that's uh, on economic business, I think we have to ask the question, mm. are, we, are we doing something there? And as regards to tourism... I do think there should be, like, ultimately they come in as on visas. 
So I think we should be looking to some degree to restrict those visas because we have to send some sort of a message back. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fine Gael, MEP, Colin Markey. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Times is reporting uh, today that local authorities uh, across the state are owed almost 105 million euro in unpaid rent. And there's some 285 social housing tenants who have arrears that are in excess of 20,000 euro each. The paper says a number of councils have indicated that they will take action on the issue because of the significant level of arrears. Let's uh, speak uh, to Independent Councillor Nick Killian, who is the Cahirlock of Meath County Council. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Nick. That seems remarkable that somebody could be in arrears of more than €20,000. Yes, and unfortunately it's happening and has happened right throughout the country. Fortunate in, in County Meath, we're at the lower end of the scale. Uh, at the end of June this year, we have 1.9 million outstanding in rent arrears. And we have one person in excess of 20,000, which is a huge amount of money. Now, some of that happened through COVID. It happened through the loss of people in jobs in COVID. But speaking with, with housing this morning, the biggest uh, problem that Mead County Council's uh, rent section have is people just not engaging with them when they find themselves in bother Mm. and ignoring it and burying their heads in the sand. And when does the council make contact? I I mean, to get to 20,000, what are you talking about? Six months, a year, two years, depending on circumstances? Well, I mean, our rents vary, you know, from... 17 euro a week right up to the maximum of 190 euro a week so uh, I wouldn't be aware obviously of the person uh, who's over the 20 who's gone over the 20k yeah but when you talk about uh, the 285 tenants in the country uh, and then fair enough it's only one in County Me but I mean this can obviously happen anywhere and I'm just wondering what the policy of the council is to start calling the money in well once it gets to a thousand people are called in Right. And they, they, the council start to engage with them. And to be fair, most people will try to make some arrangement to pay off those arrears, which, you know, is an ongoing situation. Like, we, we actually have 524 um, tenants at the moment um, over the 1,000 euro, which is roughly around 15% of our total housing stock, uh, which is we've roughly 3,600 houses uh in County Mead, owned by Mead County Council, for which we are the landlords. Mm. So, at the moment, housing, uh, or sorry, rent section is engaging with all of those on a weekly basis, on an ongoing basis. They're invited in to sit down and talk to the uh, people in the rent section to try and find a way through their difficulties. Mm. And there's many life difficulties there that prevents people, illness, um, you know, households going through a bad time uh, and the rent gets left to one side. But we, we, we always engage with the people and we write through to work with them right through to the very end. Our last resort in Mead County Council is to take somebody to court because if they lose their house, they're then homeless. Mm. So they're back on our books anyhow and we have to try and find somewhere to 
for them to stay. Okay, but so, you have to pay your way, as you say. Sometimes uh, that can be as, uh, that can be as little as seventeen euro a week. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, there's consideration given for the difficulties that people are in, but the amount of arrears uh, is something that ends up uh, on all our laps, isn't it? Uh, what happens? Uh, the council, you said. Uh, decides to intervene and to uh, look for answers uh, when a thousand is owed. What happens? Well, they're, well, what? they're doing it before. They're actually doing it before that. Okay, but what happens between the, between a thousand or before that, and when it gets to twenty thousand? Well, they just keep engaging with the people and trying to find ways through to get people to pay. But one example was given to me this morning where one tenant in in Meath County Council decided that rather than uh, paying the rent arrears, that they would uh, um, lay out pavement in their backyard. So people have to accept the responsibility that they're a tenant of Meath County Council, that they have agreed through a contract with the council to pay the rent. And as I say, the vast majority of people are doing that on an ongoing basis. And of course, there'll be situations where families find themselves, and particularly with the cost of living going up, with the back to schools, Mm. uh, cost of living, all of that, even though many of them would be getting assistance towards that through social welfare. It is a, a very difficult situation. I mean, I've dealt with people in arrears over, over my time as a councillor, and but you always try to work. And to be fair to the people in the rent section, they'll accommodate and find a meaningful way for that person. So in other words, if they can spread it out, maybe a, a rent arrears over two years, that's what they'll do as long as the person keeps that agreement. Okay. But my, I think the message I would give out this morning, if I could, Michael, is mm. to anybody listening in either Louth or Meath, if you're in arrears, engage with the rent section of the local authority and sit down and talk to them and don't let it build up because you'll find yourself in a, in a very difficult situation and possibly end up going to court, which we don't want and uh, no local authority wants to be doing that. Okay. I mean, Un- unless it's necessary and I-, I take it that sometimes it is necessary. Are there times when people just don't pay their rent? Absolutely, Michael. There are times when people simply don't pay the rent or don't make any effort to pay the rent. Our average rent is €72 Euro per week. That's what it is. If you, if you, if you break it out down over the 3600 And what I would often say to people who would come to me, I'd say, look, put, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but pay something. If you can't do it, I would get calls from people, look, I can't pay my rent because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. And I'd say, well, try to pay something. Try to go in and pay €20, because a lot of the payments are made now through the post offices or through the banks. Pay even €20, if you can afford it at all, pay that €20. And it's to encourage people to keep doing that if they are in arrears. But again, the message is talk to the council. They will talk to you. They'll work out uh, an arrangement with you and, and try and get you back down. Getting to 20,000 is a crazy situation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. unfortunately, yeah. That, that's bad. And that will end up mm. probably end up in court. OK, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed. Independent Councillor Nick Killian is the Cahirlach of Meath County Council. Now let's go to Louth and speak to Sinn Féin Councillor Tomás Sharkey, who's on the line to talk about a story that's on the front page of the Dundalk Democrat because we've been talking about rent that can't be paid or won't be paid. But there's certainly a lot of parking fines that have gone unpaid, according to the Dundalk Democrat uh, Freedom of Information request.
uh, has uh, resulted in Jason Newman reporting that half of the parking fines issued over the last five years have gone unpaid. What do you make of that, Tomas Sharkey? I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that the fines aren't being paid and I'm disappointed that we don't seem to have a robust system of getting the fines to be paid. But I also as well understand that the hands of a lot of officials in Loud County Council would be tied in this one. Last year we were advised by the Chief Executive that if if Mike Reid comes to the dock to do a shopping and you didn't pay for your parking and you got a parking fine that if you don't pay it and we're trying to pursue you, if we end up taking Mike Reid to court on on the unpaid parking fine. Loud County Council has the legal costs of taking you to court and if you're fined in the court, the fine that you pay in the court goes to the court service and not back to Loud County Council. So it's too expensive? It's expensive to take you to court and then we don't get the fine off you. That's what I mean, it's too expensive. It's more expensive uh, to take illegal action against somebody who isn't paying their fines. Yeah, so That's crazy, think, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. And I think that the system is stacked up against the management and the executive of the county council in this one. And I, I think over time that the, the softness of the system has obviously been identified or been noticed. And maybe we need to start looking at, at things differently. Number one, we need to decide ourselves, is pay parking a thing that we, we want to continue with? Because it is an income that we need to run the county properly. Uh, to, to keep the grass cut in our parks, to keep the swings swinging in our in our playgrounds. We do need an income, so this is one of the decided sources of incomes. So if we're going to continue to budget to have an income from pay parking, well, then we're going to find a better way to, to ensure that we actually get the income from it. One of the things that we all have to start thinking about is should the car parks in Loud, uh, across County Loud be a barrier system mm. where when you go in, you get your ticket on your way into a council car park and you have to pay your parking before to get the ticket to tap yourself out the, the barrier. Now, that would work for the car parks, the off-street yeah. car parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but we do need to start thinking of something. Not for street parking, obviously. Yeah. Not, not mm-hmm. for street mm-hmm. parking. And, and, and this, by the sounds of it, is because of the system and the system uh, means uh, that you've got to take somebody to court. It's probably more expensive in the long run to do that than to uh, write the fine off. Uh, um, is it that people are working the system? Do people know this and take their chances? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Mike. But at the bottom, the very start of the whole thing is that people are parking in the town of Dundalk and they're not buying a parking ticket. That's the start of it. Mm. You know, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm, I'm blaming the officials or the management or the, or the process. At the end of the day, we all know in Dundalk when we park, we all see the signs that it's pay parking districts. And you would like to think that people would pay for the parking ticket and, and pay for their time that they're parking. But then the people who don't buy the parking ticket then get a parking fine. And, uh, and we, we now understand that 50% of them in the last number of years haven't been paid. So it, it's down to this. People who have cars are driving the cars were being a, are being asked to pay for a contribution in the parking and they're not paying that. Uh, is it that they can't pay or is it that they won't pay? And I think we all know the answer. People won't pay. Or, uh, there are a number of people mm. who won't pay for the parking 
and a number of people who won't pay for the parking fine that they get. In fairness, I think people will be fined because they return later than they expected. Yeah, there, there can be a touch of that. that. That's understandable as well. But we also see from the FOI that there are details of, of a large number. Over the last five years, 6,700 fines were cancelled, appealed or written off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so there ha- there is that understanding. And my advice to anybody out there who does get a parking fine and thinks, oh, God, that's a bit severe, that was a mistake, instead of refusing to pay the fine, go into the town hall in Dundalk, explain us there is a form there in the counter, you can make your appeal, and very often, and we can see in the last five years, thousands of them have been cancelled and appealed. So don't let your parking fine sit and go on to the list of just the unpaid or the refused to pay. There's a very good system and very understanding system mm. of, of acknowledging that. Okay. But at the bottom, the, at the end of the day, Mike, Loud County Council has tens, hundreds of thousands of income that we every year as councillors decide on a budget based on what we expect to receive. And we are being asked by the public to spend money, but we're not receiving the money. We have to keep the grass cut in the parks. We have to keep the swings and the slides in the playgrounds. We have to keep the libraries open. We do need income. Mm, okay, but still, uh, <laughs> a lot of income has been generated, yeah, close to 1.6 million, uh, as uh, the Democrat uh, reports uh, today, uh, in fines paid to the council. Yes, and, and we do, on an annual basis, we go through the budget and we get the auditor's report and it's all on clear public record that that money has been spent on the purpose for which it was collected in managing the infrastructure of the county. OK, we leave it there. Thank you indeed. Sinn Féin Councillor Tomás Sharkey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Adele Dugdale of Trim Garda Station joins us for this week's report and thank you for doing so. We've a number of burglaries to report on, in fact, this week and we're going to start with a burglary that occurred in the Kells district on Wednesday of last week. Yeah, good morning, Michael. So on Wednesday, the 24th of August, at around 11.15am, an unknown male approached a home in the Castle Martin area of Kells. This male was impersonating to be a member of Angarda Siakana and gained access into the home and was able to obtain cash from the homeowner. So if any of your listeners have any information or were passing this area and observed any vehicle or person acting suspiciously, can they please make contact to Kells Garda Station on 046 928 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. OK, uh, so we're talking about uh, the burglary, the robbery and so on, but we're also talking about a, a separate crime. Uh, it is a, a crime to impersonate a member of Vanguard Shiacana, isn't it? Correct, yeah. So look, we're just... In relation to that, like, if, if any person does get approached by somebody like that, you know, always ask for a badge. And if you're still unsure, don't let them in and ring the local guard station and we can clarify that the person at the door is, in fact, who they're saying they are. Mm. And we will have not a problem in waiting five, ten minutes until that has been clarified. Yeah, if it is a member of Vanguardia Shiakana, they'll be happy uh, to wait. Uh, and yeah. I, I know that uh, from uh, all, all of uh, the uh, times I've been told it over the years. Uh, we go to Dunshockland for another burglary. Uh, this also happened on Wednesday of last week. 
Yeah, so at 8, 11 a.m. when employers were opening up their shop on Main Street on Shockland, they noticed that the premises was broken into at some stage between 6 p.m. on Tuesday the 23rd and 8 a.m. on Wednesday the 24th of August. And a cash float was taken during the incident containing a quantity of money. So if anybody was in the area between those dates stated and seen anything suspicious, please make contact to Dunshockley Guard Station on 018258600. OK, the next burglary to report on this week occurred in Hackball's Cross on Tuesday of last week. Yeah, so this incident occurred in the Eden Kill area of Hackball's Cross um, at around 10.30pm. The homeowners, unfortunately, were at home at the time of the incident and they heard the window smash downstairs. Now, entry was gained, but nothing was taken from the property and the suspect or suspects fled the scene. So if any of your listeners were in the area and have dash cam footage or observed anything or anyone acting suspiciously, please contact on Dock Garda Station on 42 938 Okay, uh, you're going to report on an assault next. Uh, this happened in Drogheda last week. Yeah, on Tuesday the 23rd of August at quarter to one in the morning, um, an injured male was approached by a male who was unknown to him at the time and so he was subsequently assaulted. So the suspect was wearing a grey tracksuit, but that's the only details we have as currently. So if anybody has any information to this incident, you're asked to please contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041 Okay, and uh, some criminal damage to report on next. Uh, this is an incident that occurred in Black Rock. Yes, yeah, so Gardy received a call at 4.40am on Sunday morning, the 28th of August. The Sunday had just gone, and it was discovered that the two bins were set alight, causing damage to the walls and roof of the public toilets on Main Street in Black Rock. So if anybody has any information to this incident, we ask that they please make contact to Dundalk Garda Station on 042 938 Okay, and I, I know you want to uh, speak uh, to our listeners this morning, particularly uh, parents of school-going children, uh, about the rules of the road. They still apply, do they, when the schools are back, or is it a free-for-all and you can park anywhere and do what you like? No, unfortunately <laughs> not. So, look, Michael, over the next few days and weeks, the roads are obviously going to be busier with school buses and cars and pedestrians coming and going. And we're just appealing to all road users to please have a little extra patience while everybody settles back into the routine again. And it's a happy but also stressful time for parents and kids because they might be moving into a different school. But it's also a time, obviously, when safety is a priority for everyone getting to and from school. So we're just urging everybody to abide by the rules of the road, expect the unexpected at times, and just leave a little bit extra time as um, delays may be expected. Okay, and that means you can't park up on the footpath or outside of a a driveway because you're only going to be a minute, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah. You okay. have to you know, be aware to every, every other house um, owner that is in the area or any other premises, um, you know, to go the extra little bit of time, park where is, is relevant, where you can park, and then and move out safely. Very good. Thank you indeed, Garda Adele Dugdale of Trim Garda Station. And we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Uh, just uh, a couple of comments uh, in the minute or so that we have left to bring to you. Uh, Brendan Murr saying parking fines aren't being paid. The whole traffic warden system needs an overhaul. It needs to be privatised. Why uh, is it uh, that you have pay parking in Dundalk and Drogheda, but it's not being patrolled daily? Uh, disabled parking spots are meant to be for a maximum of two hours, 
but that doesn't seem to be enforced, Brendan says. Thanks uh, indeed, uh, Brendan, for that. Somebody else in touch with us then uh, about uh, rents not being collected. It really is incredible to think uh, that somebody could be €20,000 in arrears. A Dublin listener WhatsApping us saying, the problem is that county councils take so long to assess rents. Uh, it can take over a year to do this and then the tenant is hit with a backdated uh, amount of uh, the new rent. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for that. John is in Kells and John says, if somebody won't pay their rent, uh, well then they shouldn't be housed. Uh, if you can't come up with €17 Euro or the average of €70 Euro that we heard on the programme this morning for local authority tenants, well then there's something really wrong uh, and you're obviously not able to manage your finances and probably not capable of living independently. So therefore you should not be housed. It's either that, he says, or you're just... Uh, downright mean and greedy and don't deserve a house from the council because at the end of the day everybody else is paying for you to be accommodated. Thank you John uh, for getting in touch with us today. That's our our programme for today because our time has run out in us once again and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.